0: This weekend. I am so excited to be here uh, with you this morning. It is now officially the Christmas season. How many of you for Christmas is your favorite season of the year? Come on. Yeah, I love Christmas. I'm kind of a I'm kind of a little kid in that way. Uh, you should enjoy Christmas. It is the best time of the year. For some of you, you did not take down your Christmas lights last year, and now you're ahead of the game. You no longer look lazy next to your neighbors. You now look like you have some forethought and that you planned ahead. And so it's it's a great time of the year, right? Christmas. Everything looks good, the lights are up, I tell you what, I'm I'm just really excited to start this series uh, with you. Um, It should be of the opinion of every Christian that Christmas is one of the best times of the year because it is a time that we pause and we remember and celebrate that our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ, came to earth on a mission, and that mission was our redemption. And so, as you know, we have been looking through the book of John over the last several months, and we are very close to the end of the book of John, and we're at the point where his passion week has started. He is moving quickly towards the cross, and now we're within the last several, Hours of his life as we are starting to look at John chapter number 18. And as I was studying through the book of John, it occurred to me that there's this parallel, there's this contrast between his birth and his death. There is a contrast between the cradle and the grave. And so for the next several weeks, we are going to look at that contrast. It's very interesting if you were to read the entire chapter of John 18 that Jesus says something to the Roman governor Pilate while he's on trial. In verse 37, he says, This is the purpose for which I came. And the only reason why we celebrate Jesus and the only reason why we celebrate Christmas is that Jesus is our Lord and our Savior. He was not just another man, but He was God Himself who came to earth for one purpose, and that purpose alone was to die. And Jesus' death changes everything. Even from a secular point of view, there's no denying the fact that one man changed history more than anyone else. That man's name was Jesus. And even if you don't believe in Jesus as Lord, even if you don't believe in Jesus as Savior, you cannot deny that his impact changed the course of human history. And specifically, his death changed everything. I mean, it's quite a, quite a thing to look at and to ponder if you think about it. There is millions of people in the United States who do not believe in Jesus as their Lord and Savior. And yet, even though they don't understand why they are doing what they do, they're still celebrating the Christmas season. We see this in our economy, how there's a big bump because people are buying gifts and giving gifts and people are taking off from work and they're getting together with their family. It's kind of interesting how this one man's birth and his one this one man's death 2,000 years later is still having an impact throughout the world. There's no denying that Jesus made a difference. Think about it like this, the Romans crucified countless people, 10 of thousands, perhaps even hundreds of thousands of people were crucified by the Roman Empire. Lots of people have been killed for religious zeal, but no one has had the impact that Jesus Christ had, and it's because of his birth and because of his death. And we have to understand that as we go through this Christmas season, Christmas is all about a cross. And so as we compare the narrative of his birth with the narrative of his death, we always want to remember the reason. For this season, as cliche as it is, is ultimately Jesus Himself. And let us not be distracted by the cares of this world. Amen. Awesome. If you have your Bible with you today, I want to encourage you, we're going to read out of John chapter number 18, and we're going to start, however, with Luke chapter number two, because again, we want to compare Jesus's birth with his death. We want to see the contrast and see what we can glean from why he came to the earth. So in Luke chapter two, starting in verse number one, here's what the Bible says. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first First registration from Cornelius, the governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph went up from Galilee, which is the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was from the house and the lineage of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth to her son. And she gave birth to the firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flocks by night. And the angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not! For behold, I bring you good news of great joy for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is the Christ, the Lord. And this is a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and laying in a manger. And suddenly there was an angel of a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. And the angels went away and they went to heaven. And the shepherds said to one another, Let us go to Bethlehem to see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby laying in the manger. And when they saw it, they made it known, the saying that had been told to them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them, but Mary treasured these things in her heart, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen and had been told to them. Now, this is the moment for which we celebrate. This is the Christmas account where Jesus was born to earth and the angels appeared to the shepherds. And what did they say? Fear not, because peace has come to earth. If you ever want peace, then the place you have to start is the Christmas story, because there is no true peace until you understand that Jesus came to make everything right in your life and in your eternity, and that's what Jesus was, was ultimately here to do, and that's what the angels were proclaiming to the shepherds, that peace is now here on earth. But here's the thing that the angels didn't tell the shepherds. And here's the thing that the shepherds didn't understand probably in that moment was that peace might have been declared at Jesus's birth, but peace was solidified at Jesus's death. With that, let's start reading John chapter 18. We're going to read just a few verses, starting verse one. When Jesus spoke these words, he went out with his disciples and across the, the brook Kidron. And there was a garden for which he and his disciples entered. Now, Judas, who was about to betray him, also knew the place, for Jesus often went there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? And they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing there with them. And when Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, who do you seek? And they said to him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he spoke. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's ear and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink from the cup that my father has given me? And the first scene that we read in Luke chapter number two, this is the moment in which Jesus was born into the world. His tiny body was destined for the second scene that we read in John chapter number 18. The reason why he was born in Luke 2 was so that he could give his life in John chapter number 18. In Luke chapter 2, Jesus is wrapped in swaddling clothes. In the garden in John 18, Jesus is bound with chains. In the manger, the angels sing his praises. In the garden, the soldiers are cursing his existence. And what we see in this moment is that God does all things well. And when you look at the totality of Jesus's life from the beginning to the end, you see how it unfolded that God was orchestrating everything along the way. When you compare how Jesus began His life to how Jesus ended His life, it's amazing to see how God is sovereign in everything that He does. And that is the big idea that I want you to see from this message, is that Jesus is a sovereign God who orchestrated His birth, who orchestrated His death, and He orchestrated His resurrection. And this is a good lesson and a good reminder for every single one of us in this season, that we need to remember that God is sovereign in all things. Christmas is the perfect time to push pause and to look at who Jesus is and the character of God and say, God, you are ultimately in control. You are the one who is going to bring your will to pass from beginning to the end. At Christmas time, it's easy to see the lights. It's easy to sing the songs. It's really easy to eat the turkey and the pie, and yet we can get into a routine and we can forget the impact of the Christmas story for our lives. We forget the power of his birth, and we forget the power of his death, and we forget the implication for his resurrection for us individually. We forget that God is sovereign. We forget that Christmas is about Jesus bringing peace because he forgives us of our sins. We forget that Christmas is a story about how Jesus brings peace when we're laying in the hospital bed. We forget that Jesus and the Christmas story is about peace when life comes crashing down around us. It's not about the lights. It's not about the tree. It's about God walking on this earth, bringing peace to you and I when we desperately needed it the most. Amen? Amen. Amen. Christmas is not a cute story about a manger. Christmas is a rescue mission that has massive implications in our lives. So when you compare these two narratives, there's three things that come to the surface that remind us of how Christmas impacts our life every single day. And these reminders are important to us no matter how many times we've heard them because we need to put them on the forefront of our mind because we have spiritual amnesia. There's too many times we get into situations in life where we don't have the answers and and life starts to crash around us and we forget the implication that Emmanuel was with us. So we need to constantly remind ourselves and keep these truths at the forefront of our life. And I want to share them with you very quickly. The first thing we see is this, Jesus is the Christ, God himself. When you compare the birth of Jesus to the death of Jesus, there's no question that Jesus is God and God is in control. Most of us like to have some level of control. Specifically, men like to be in control. This is why men, most of the time when they're driving with their families, guess who's in the passenger or in the driver's seat? Men like to drive. Men also oftentimes sit with their back uh, to the wall facing the door of the restaurant. And this is why men hold the remote at home, generally speaking, right? Or is that just at my house? Okay. Uh, The first thing I do is when I sit down on the couch, Knox is going to have the remote because he's going to try to beat me to it, and I'm going to take the remote. I don't ask if I can have the remote. I don't ask what he's watching. I take the remote. Why? Because it's my house, and I want to be in control of my house, right? You are the same way. We like to have control particularly men. We, we like to control our environments that we find ourselves in. This is why it's been my observation that most men hate taking family pictures. How many of you men hate taking family pictures? By a show of hands. I do not see that every man has his hand up, I think, right? Men hate taking family pictures by and large. Not because we hate our families. We love our families. But everything about family pictures is outside of the control of the man, and he ends up doing things that he does not want to do. Like, he does not want to dress up, He doesn't want to stand there. He doesn't want to be like, like, hold that. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? Like, we don't want to do that. And oftentimes, we take pictures at the most inconvenient time, right? Like when we're about to leave and we want to go back home or during deer season or during football season, right? This is why we don't like family pictures. This is why men also don't like weddings, okay? Yes, we go to weddings, we'll smile, we'll sit there, but deep down inside, that man don't like being at the wedding. You know why? Because somebody planned that wedding during the OU Texas game, okay? And nobody likes that. Why? Because we want to be in control of what we do. Most of us struggle with some desire for control that we'd like to exhibit. We want to control our lives, we want to control our environments, we want to control our Kids' response and behavior. This is why every parent hates the cereal aisle at the grocery store, because you know when you go down it, your kids are going to throw a fit. This is why we want to control the outcome. This is why we get mad during OU and OSU game last night, right? I mean, this is why I was whining this morning uh, about the outcome of the game. Why? Because we want to control certain things for a certain outcome. And when we can't control something that's important to us, Oftentimes, it causes anxiety in our life. It causes frustration. And as Christians, we, we know that we should have control, but we, or excuse me, have peace, but we often look at the things that we can't control, and it starts to rob us of our peace. What the cradle to the grave shows us is that Jesus is in control, so when I look to Jesus, I can have peace no matter what I see going on around me. As one commentator said, Jesus wrote the symphony and conducted the score to perfection. And when you see how his life started and how his life ended, you see that he called all the shots before he got there, and then he conducted that score with perfection. And if he can do that, then when he says you can have peace in life, we indeed can have peace because he knows how to orchestrate peace to come forth in our life. This would go against the perceived narrative of both of these accounts. Now, when you read these stories on the surface, it would seem like the Romans were in charge, right? And the account of Luke, Caesar gives a decree and everyone has to be counted. It's very inconvenient for Joseph and Mary to have to load up, travel by donkey while she's very pregnant to Bethlehem. This was not obviously an easy journey. Yet Caesar made a decree and everything was going to happen according to what Caesar said. Except one problem with that assumption is that while Caesar might have gave a decree, God had written years and years and years and years before that the Savior was going to be born in Bethlehem. The problem was Mary with the, with the, with the, the infant Jesus inside of her womb was at Nazareth. Caesar gives a decree. Jesus is born in, in Bethlehem. On the night Jesus was betrayed, it also looked like the Romans were in charge. The Bible says that Judas got together a band of soldiers. Historians will tell you that a band of soldiers is roughly 600 men. right, we're not talking about a ragtag group of people with pitchforks and torches. We're talking about the Roman army, 600 men strong, men armed to the teeth, probably seen some combat in the past. And so when you look at this account with 600 guys who are battle hardened, armed to the teeth, showing up against a guy who's a carpenter with a few of his fishermen buddies, it would appear like the Romans were in charge. And yet Jesus had also prophesied that this was going to happen. Many times they had tried to kill Jesus. When you read through the scripture, account. And yet Jesus would always say, my time has not yet come. You're not going to be able to touch me. In fact, even in the garden, Jesus is talking to his disciples inside the garden. In verse 4, he steps out to meet them. Why? Because he knew that they were coming. He is not surprised by the situation. He is in complete control. And to powerfully illustrate this point, when he steps out of the garden, he says, who do you seek? Why is he asking this question? He knows the answer. He knows who they seek. They are seeking him. He knows what's about to happen. And yet he still asks the question Who do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And he replies, I am he. This is the most powerful I am statement of Jesus. It echoes God at the garden, excuse me, at the burning bush with Moses. And when Jesus says, I am he, what happens? All the people that are there, the 600 strong chief priests, officials, Judas, everyone falls on the ground. And the garden... Jesus is declared to be Emmanuel. Excuse me, in the the manger, Jesus is declared to be Emmanuel, God with us. And now in the garden, on the night that he's betrayed, he is showing that he is God in action and that he is the ultimate authority in this moment. With this one statement, Jesus declared his name from eternity past. The Ancient of Days is the one who's speaking, and they can't even stand in his presence. He is obviously calling the shots. and He knocks everybody over with his words. Jesus is simply trying to show that no one takes his life from him. He had told his disciples a few days earlier, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down. And now here we see he's laying down his life for his followers. He's executing the plan of salvation for the whole world. The hour of his sacrifice is here. The climax of the redemption plan is at hand. The plan of salvation is being unfolded. And Jesus lays down his life. Now, if we look at Jesus as a helpless victim or a courageous martyr, we would still be missing the point. He's not a helpless victim. Jesus is not even a courageous martyr. Jesus is a sovereign savior. He didn't pick the garden as a place to hide. He picked the garden because verse two says, he goes there often. He knew that Judas would know the place. So Jesus goes to the garden to be found. Here's what we need to understand about the Christmas story and the Christmas season. No matter what we're going through, no matter what we see with our eyes, when we are following Christ, he is sovereign over our life. He is sovereign over our salvation. He's sovereign over everything that we need. And he does nothing on a whim. He has a plan, just as he had a plan for his life, he has a plan for your life and he has a plan for my life We're not following a God who's wringing his hands trying to figure out what to do next. He has a plan and we have to trust his plan and we have to trust his process that it's going to unfold for our good and for his glory. no matter what we see, no matter what we're experiencing, we have to know that Jesus is going to bring good things to pass in our life because he is sovereign the. Second thing I want to show you is that Jesus is the Christ who helps us escape death. So after the hostile and now humble crowd stands up and they're dusting themselves off, Jesus asks them again, who are you seeking? Now, if it was me and I was one of those soldiers, I would have probably just went ahead and skinned on out of there. I've seen some really big people. As a kid, I've been in fights and I'm sure you have. I mean, sometimes you win some, sometimes you lose some, but I never had somebody speak to me and I fell over. When Jesus knocks these guys over, if it was me, I would be out of there. They're not that smart. They stay there and they say, we're seeking Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus answered them in verse 8. Here's what it says. I told you, I am he. So if you seek me, now let these men go. Now, this would be an easy verse to just gloss over. It doesn't seem to be that big of a deal. It'd be easy just to write that off as just a filler within this narrative. If you're seeking me, then let these men go. But that sentence embodies the gospel message. And this moment in which Jesus came, it symbolizes everything that he's trying to do for you. He is taking our place so that we can be released. That is the hope that we have in the Christmas season. Jesus is born at night. Now he's being betrayed at night. And the night that the angels showed up to the shepherds in the field on the night of his birth, they said that the Savior had been born. And now we see a different shepherd, the great shepherd, dying for the sheep. On this night, the good shepherd is fulfilling the promise that he, he gave to his disciples that he was going to lay down his life. And what's interesting about this passage is that in the other gospels, in Matthew and Mark specifically, it says the disciples ran away. But John makes it clear that Jesus told the guard of soldiers, let these men go. And this is sending the readers a message we can never forget that Jesus is the one who is rescuing our lives. We hate asking for help. We hate saying, I need somebody else. But here's the deal death was coming for every single one of us, and Jesus jumped in the way. The punishment that Jesus is about to receive was meant for us. The mocking that Jesus is about to endure was meant for us. The torture that he's about to endure was meant for us. The cross that he was going to hang on was our cross, and Jesus jumped in the way. Jesus looked at death, hell, and the grave, and he said, take me, let these men go. Take me, let JFA go. Take me, let Austin go. That's what Jesus did. The question of the crucifixion of Christ is always this. Who's responsible? Was it the Jews? Was it the Romans? Isaiah makes it very clear who's responsible. You were responsible, and I was responsible. For it was our sins that were laid upon him. And for this reason, he said, let these men go. The reason why we have to understand this is because we're always trying to fix our own problems and rescue ourselves. And this rarely works. Rarely, rarely do we have the skill set to get us out of the problems that we created for ourselves. Let me say that again, because I don't know if that registered. Very rarely will you or I have the skill set to get us out of the problems that we have created for ourselves. I think we'll say that a third time. Very rarely do you or I have the skill sets to get us out of the problems that we created for ourselves. That's terrible. Thank you. I awesome. Take Knox fishing sometimes. Our, te- our family is terrible fishermen. We are just atrociously bad. It's on record. You've heard me lament about it several times. Knox will come. Charity will come. It's both are the same. And the real will just be a giant bird's nest. Okay, I mean, there's just, I mean, line going everywhere. It's just a big heap. I'm not sure how that happened. I can't get this fixed. Well, nobody's going to fix that. Jesus would look at that and say, just throw it away. We'll start over. I mean, it's a mess. Got into it, don't have the skills to get out. In a lot of ways, our lives are the same way. We created problems for ourselves, and we don't have the skill set or the ability. To get ourselves out of it. Peter in this account is a perfect example of this. If you continue to read the account in John chapter 18, you'll see that Peter follows this crowd from behind while after Jesus is rested, they go on there and we know the account very clearly, Jesus denies knowing Peter three times. Or excuse me, Peter denies knowing Jesus three times. Peter thinks that through his deception, he's protecting himself from punishment of knowing Jesus. However, that's not true because Jesus has said, let these men go. And just as I said, rarely do we have the skills to get us out of the problems we create for ourselves. Every single one of our problems is rooted in sin, and none of us can fix that problem. Only Jesus can. So when the Romans are coming, in a lot of ways, the Romans represent sin in our own life. From the time of Jesus' birth, the Romans are there. Their presence is felt, and now they're the ones resting Jesus. So too, sin is in our life from the moment we're born, and it's an issue that we're always dealing with. An overwhelming majority of our issues in life are sin issues. I want you to think about it. Strained relationships tend to go back to sin issues. Personal battles and temptations tend to go back to sin issues. Fighting with your spouse is a sin issue. Trying to figure out how to raise your kids. There's almost always a sin element in every single problem that we have in life. And now it might be our sins. It might be somebody else's sins. But there always tends to be a sin element. When a problem arises in life and what Jesus shows us is that only he has the paddle power to handle sins. And so until we come to him as the solution, until we bend our knee to him as the one who is the rescuer of our lives, we are never going to be able to knock the enemy out of our life. No matter how hard we try, no matter how much we fight. So we see that Jesus is the Christ. We see that Jesus is, He's the one who helps us escape death. And third and finally, if the worship team wants to come back, Jesus is the Christ who causes us to respond differently. One of the things I think is really interesting about the account of Jesus is that his life is different on how people responded to Jesus. And there's a lot of different responses to Jesus. The shepherds saw the vision of the angels and they went looking for Jesus. And when they encountered Jesus with their life, they we're different afterwards. They started telling everybody what they had seen. And this teaches us something. Our response to the cross should not be pity. It shouldn't be bravery. But it should be faith. When people see other people in pain, oftentimes we want to wrap our arms around them. This is why advertisers use sappy stuff to get us to buy into things or send them money. Like, you know, one of the, I think it's a dirty trick. Please don't be mad at me. But when they show the pictures of like the the starving dogs and then they want you to send money to them, like they know that they're pulling on your heartstrings. That's why they play the sad song and everything. Because they know that if they show the picture of the hungry dog, that they'll send, that you'll send $29.95 to support this dog. Why? Because we don't like seeing other people in pain and in suffering. We don't like seeing animals in pain and in suffering. So we know that this is something that's within us that when we see someone in pain and suffering, we want there. And what can happen a lot of times is that we see Jesus on the cross and we feel pity for him when what he's calling us to do is put our faith in him. See, Peter had this problem. He's there with the disciples. He's watching the crowd of 600 men show up to arrest Jesus. He sees Judas, who he's lived with for the last three years, who he would count as a buddy, a confidant, betraying Jesus, and Peter gets ticked off. A few hours ago, Peter looks at Jesus and says, I will die for you. And now he is serious about that promise, and he intends to fulfill that promise. So with a Roman cohort of 600 men, Peter takes it upon himself to draw his sword. He says, I'm going to go to work. And whatever happens, what happens? And he starts to swing the sword and he whacks off a servant's ear. Now, there's a lot of different ways we can look at this. Some of us could be holier than thou and say, well, I wouldn't do that. But that's a lie because we've all had the urge to take a swing at somebody before. We could sit here and say, well, you know, Peter's just being ambitious. Well, maybe. You know what I think it is? I think Peter saw Jesus in trouble. And Peter loved Jesus, and he saw Jesus as a victim in this moment, and he wanted to intervene. He didn't like his Lord being assaulted. What's interesting is that Peter had just watched all these soldiers fall down by the simple word of Jesus, and then he thought he needed his sword to rescue Jesus. What Peter was learning in this moment is that his response had to be different than in the past. So Jesus challenges Peter to live a sanctified life because of who he is. He said, look, you got to put your sword away. I got to drink from this cup. In other accounts, he says, you live by the sword, you're going to die by the sword. Is this not why I came? Is this not what I'm supposed to do? So the way that Peter wanted to respond to the natural, Jesus is now challenging, saying, I need you to respond different. And here's where this whole message comes together for us. You see, Jesus's birth was different than ours. And Jesus' life was different than ours, and Jesus' death is also going to be different than ours. Peter had told Jesus that he was going to die for him, and that's what he intended to do. But basically, Jesus said, I don't need you to pity me. I don't need you to feel sorry for me. I need you to live different. That's what I need you to do. I need you to put that sword away. I'm the Christ. I'm the one who dies for the sheep. You have to trust me in this moment and have faith. Now, what's weird about this is we know that Peter goes from taking on 600 soldiers with a butter knife to a few hours later, he's there and he's completely denying even knowing Jesus. What happened in that hour or two from the time that Peter was literally ready to die for Jesus to the point where he was ready to deny him? I think when the reality that Peter couldn't live the life the way he wanted to and he respond different, I think that completely knocked him off his rails. You see, it's easy for us to amen when we say, God, Jesus is God. It's easy for us to amen when we say Jesus is in control. However, when we realize the implication of that truth for our life, many times we start falling apart. Because when Jesus is God and Jesus is in control, that means we don't get to respond to the situations in life the way that we want to in the natural. So that means is, is that when our kids start to do their own thing we can't jump in and hover over that situation why because we can't control them. that means when we get sick and we're at the doctor's office that we can't always fix the problems that are inside of our our own body that means that when our us and our spouse are and fights with one another we don't get our way we have to surrender and we have to submit ourselves to our spouse we have to say i'm sorry we have to treat them the way jesus treated us That means when we're sitting there at the job and the job isn't the one job that we want. We want to be lazy and just not show up. That means we show up and we act different because we're a witness to Christ on how we we live. When there's a problem between us and a friend, we don't just let it fester in our hearts. We go to them and resolve it. See, all these things are a different response than what we feel in the natural. And the only way you can do that is when you say, Jesus, I trust your way more than my way, because I know you're God. I know you're in control. And so we have to exercise faith. This type of faith requires submission. And this is where Peter fell apart. He was good at following Jesus on his own terms, but then when he had to follow Jesus on Jesus's terms, he fell apart. And some of us are in a season right now where life is falling apart and we're struggling following Jesus because we're We're trying to do it on our own terms. We're drawing the sword, we're swinging at everything that comes our way, and we're not fixing the problem. Some of us are fighting problems in life, and you're just creating more problems for yourself. We want the peace that was promised to the shepherds. We want the peace that's promised in the garden of Gethsemane. But the only way that that peace comes is when we slow down and we say, "God." If Christmas teaches me anything, it's that you're in control and you fix the problems that I can't fix. If Christmas teaches me anything, then it means that I have to have faith and you have to say yes to you, so that you can fix the problems that are outside of my own authority. So if that's you this Christmas season, you're desperately in a place where you need Christ to work in your life. Then it's only going to happen when you say, you know what, Jesus, you're God. Jesus, you're in control. My faith is in you. And so I'm going to live the way that you've called me to. And now my response is going to be different from everything else. That's what Christmas is. us. That's what the cradle teaches us. And that's what the grave teaches us.